0: funny, we covered hypocrisy a lot when we were in Matthew because of the Pharisees, even covered it some earlier in Galatians, but it it drives you crazy when one person is says one thing and does another. There's an aspect of that that has always made, it just, it, it bothers me. when someone acts some way with one group of people and they're a completely different person with another group of people. I've tried to learn and grow in my life and to be who I am. I I think back to when I was a sophomore in college. I had made a very... You know, I had moved 3,000 miles away from home, or nearly, from Southern California to Lynchburg, Virginia. And so when I... I had made this good group of friends. And then my sophomore year, I was rooming with one of those close friends that I had. But I made this other friend on the dorm, and he was very different from my other group of friends. But I enjoyed him. I enjoyed being around him, and I found myself spending more time with him. And one of the close friends from my freshman year came to me partway through the school year, and he he told me, he said, it's interesting, he was a, a few years older than I was. We had started school together, but he had waited a few years before he started school. And so he was in his early 20s, whereas I was 19. And while not everyone in their early 20s has great wisdom, he had a nugget for me. He told me, he said, Craig, you're becoming a different person when you're around that, that friend. And to those who are close to you, who have gotten to know you, who love you, we don't like what we see when you're with that person. That's not who you are. You don't treat people as well when you're with him as when you do when you're not. And I thought about that, and it it broke my heart that I had allowed myself to be changed to act differently because of the influence of someone else. But as I was thinking about that, it's, it speaks to a, a greater truth as who we are as Christians. Our big idea today as we look at Galatians 6, 1 through 10 is that it matters to God how we treat people. It matters to God how we treat people. When I was... A young boy, I liked comic books. A lot. My favorite were Spider-Man. I loved Spider-Man. There's a... At the beginning of Spider-Man's story, he gets bitten by a radioactive spider and it gives him these powers of a spider. And he's told by his Uncle Ben, who is his father figure, he says to him, Peter, with great power comes great responsibility. I want to go back to chapter 5 before we start looking at chapter 6. Look at the context here. In chapter 5, verse 22, as Paul has been urging them to walk in the Spirit, he tells you what comes from that. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And you think about that, we have the Spirit of God living inside of us. That's great power. And if we yield ourselves to Him, if we walk in the Spirit, what flows from that? Notice almost every single one of those isn't just a personal thing. It's something that will flow from my life that will change how I interact with you. Interestingly enough, God created us to be in fellowship with him, and so we need that fellowship, and the only way we get a fulfilling fellowship is to be selfless and have these fruits of the Spirit as the markers of our life. Remember as Paul concluded chapter 5 before he moves into this thought in chapter 6 he said let us not become boastful challenging one another envying one another. This relational stuff is important. It is important to God how we treat people. Let's read through our passage. Galatians 6 verses 1 through 10. Brethren... Even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work And then he will have a reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are the household of, of the household of faith. Lord, again I come to you, and I pray for strength and clarity, Thank you for this passage that is so crucial to who we are as a church. Be with us as we go through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In this section, Paul is going to point at three different groups. And this is how you're to treat those people. Our first group can almost be divided into two, so it's almost like four groups, but I'm going to treat it as three. The first group is our responsibility to a fellow Christian in sin. Our responsibility to a fellow Christian in sin. Again, verse 1, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. Again, Paul uses the term "brethren" here. Throughout the NASB that I've been using, it's gone back and forth some between brothers and sisters or brethren. But this was Paul's term of affection for fellow believers. It's interesting. In the book of Galatians, he uses it ten times. This is the tenth time he is said, "brothers and sisters." He's given them this instruction on the spirit and he's saying, now let's see how we use that. It says, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, or for trespass, there's the Greek word paratomai, and it literally means a false step. So this isn't the fact that a fellow believer or God has caught someone in the act of sinning so much as it's, It's that sin has gotten the better of this person. Almost like this person has been surprised by sin. It's overtaken him. And that word for false step or trespass is not the word used in the Greek for habitual sin. It's not that I don't believe that Christians can sin habitually, but I'm saying that here, this isn't what Paul's pointing towards. And I think we get to why in the, in the context later, but he's saying, if, if this person has a sin, you have a responsibility. Because of who you are in walking in the Spirit, you have a responsibility to restore that brother. Restore them into one spirit. You know, Sin drives us not only from fellowship with God, but from fellowship with one another. If I am overtaken by sin, it can lead to shame, which means I, seeing someone that I respect and love from the church might increase that shame. Or that momentary lapse of being surprised by sin by having this false step may start giving way towards the flesh to say hey that was good it might be better to do this and I don't want the accountability of being in one spirit as Paul says here so Paul says it's the responsibility of the other believers the mature believers to restore them Spiritual Christians should get that person back up on his feet, back into the fellowship with the body. It was interesting here that the word that he uses for restore, katarizo, it's used in the Gospels for both mending a fishing net and for setting a broken bone. And that's what he's saying here. We're to to mend them, to make them right. This may involve confrontation. It usually does. Because of our selfish, sinful nature, we don't often want to have what we've done wrong pointed out to us. Matthew 18, remember though, Jesus told them if your brothers in sin, go to him and when you two are in private you confront them about it and then, if that doesn't work, you take someone else and if that doesn't work, you bring it to the assembly something I'm going to get to later, but there within the church within the body and we should know one another as we grow spiritually together, we should, not every case, I guess what I'm getting at is not every case is the same. Know each other, love each other, have a desire to bring people back to fellowship, even if that takes confrontation. Paul here is pointing towards the spiritual Christian doing this, the Remember, the one who is spiritual is the one who has matured by walking in the Spirit. As we talked about, that that whole process of yielding myself to the Spirit is not natural. Paul said that the flesh and the Spirit war against one another. Who I am as a selfish, sinful person wars against the Spirit of God within me. So that if the Spirit wins... My flesh is fighting. If my flesh wins, the Spirit's fighting. It's always within us. But as we grow, it is easier to yield to the Spirit, it is easier to suppress our sinful desires. And so that's who Paul is soaring towards here. I had a lot of friends growing up near the ocean that sailed. I am not a sailor. I like things that have engines and they move. But I was thinking about this, that sailing is a skill that you not only have to to learn by being taught, you also have to learn from experience. And God forbid you're out there on the ocean and something really bad starts happening. A terrible storm. It takes... Years of experience in learning to know how to bring your ship back into harbor. If you had someone who had just learned to sail and they were out there and a huge squall came up, would you send someone else who just learned to sail out to rescue them? They both would be lost. That's what Paul is saying here with sin. It is the spiritually mature who are to to bring them in so that their own selfish, sinful nature doesn't see a an opportunity to overtake the spirit and drag that person down too. This is each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. As a spiritual Christian, we need to... Avoid self-righteousness when we're dealing with those who have stumbled by knowing. Again, I brought this out when we were talking about the flesh and the spirit. Know your enemy. Those who have matured, who have yielded to the spirit, know their weaknesses. So as you seek to restore someone, that's what we need to be doing so that you yourself aren't tempted. Doesn't matter how spiritually mature you are, we are all tempted. Verse two, he begins to shift away from restoration and more to prevention. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. I think that in the context here of what he's saying, this isn't just your troubles, my troubles. That in the context, this is directly associated with the heavy burden of some particular temptation. And that, I think, is what best fits the context, but that doesn't mean this doesn't speak to all burdens. Whether it be something in your social life or something to do with money, spiritual problems like we've talked about, any conditions in your life that are causing a heavy burden the word here for bear means to carry a heavy load. This isn't something you're, light you're taking off your friend's hands. I think it's interesting when I get home from the grocery store with a family of six, I usually have a ton of groceries. You know, the shopping cart, when I'm pushing it to the car, is usually overflowing, and so then I get home and it's a lot to carry in. And it's nice, Kaylin and Julia, our older daughters, will come and they will grab milk jugs and heavier things. But as I may have a full handful, our four-year-old will come out and she will grab a, a box of cereal that will almost make me drop everything else just so that she can carry that. That's not what we're called to do to take the lightest thing we can find. We're called to, to bear a heavy burden. And I will tell you, I believe this is is at the core, this is the nitty-gritty, so to speak, of the Christian life and our responsibility within the church. Paul here, by referring to the law of Christ, is helping his readers realize that I've been telling you over and over and over, we are not under the Mosaic law. That doesn't mean we're just free to do what we want. There is a, a greater law that has been given to us, and that is the law of Christ. This may be confusing. We've heard no law, no law, no law. Now we're under the law. And Paul here is contrasting. law with grace because the primary characteristics of the Mosaic law was its legal system, its outward it was all on the outside it's doing this and this and this and this the primary characteristic of the law of Christ is grace Paul isn't saying here that there was no law under grace anymore, that there was no grace under the Mosaic law. But the motivation is so different. We saw the outcome of the Mosaic law and what the the whole religious system of Judea had become during the time of Christ. It was all about me, look what I am doing, look what I can do. I'm certainly not going to fall asleep up here this morning <laughs> i don 't know if I've ever told that story or not, jumping off a goose trail. my grandfather, my mom 's dad uh, he was in school administration at several different Christian universities, uh, but he did like he went to Israel over seventy times during in his life and he was a His dad was a pastor and he had grown up preaching and traveling with his dad and speaking at these tent revivals and things. And so he enjoyed preaching and would often be asked by churches to come in and teach on fulfilled prophecy. Thousands and thousands of slides of here in the Old Testament said one stone when we left upon another, here's the foundation of that town, not one stone on another. Grandpa Bauman died in his mid-90s and about a year before he died he'd been asked by this church a couple hours away from where he lived to come preach so he woke up early that morning and drove over there and they gave him a stool to sit on while he preached because he couldn't stand for that long at 93 or 4 and then at some point during this sermon he put himself to sleep and he fell off the stool He had a good sense of humor. I remember telling him, like, Grandpa, you you got to liven up your material if you're putting yourself to sleep. (laughs) All right, I'm sorry. Well, back to the passage. So we can view the law of Christ that we're under as being everything that Jesus taught. When Jesus was telling the disciples he was going to send them the Spirit, he said that the Spirit would teach them more that they weren't ready to hear. And that the Spirit came glorifying him and and that. And so we can look at the rest of the New Testament. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit through Jesus' apostles as the law of Christ. But what it all boils down to, I believe, is what Jesus said when he was asked what the greatest commandment was. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That that is the law of Christ that we are to fulfill. Paul said as much back in chapter 5, verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But I think what's really important here, what I want you to get is that By telling them here that bearing one another's burdens, the heavy load, that this is how we are to fulfill the law of Christ. That this isn't some kind of just emotional, sentimental love that that has words and maybe nice thoughts, but no action to it. That the law of Christ is fulfilled when our love is the get your hands dirty kind of love. This morning, for the scripture reading, I read from John 13. And you remember, Jesus said there that the new commandment he had for them was that they were to love one another. Do you remember how he said they were to love one another? As he had loved them. That's a tall order. But that's what fulfilling the law of Christ is. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If, if we are going to love one another as Jesus loved his disciples, as Jesus loved us, loves us, we have to be willing for serving self-sacrificial love. It's a love that acts on the needs of those around you, a love that bears the burdens of others. I think it's interesting, though, as we look at that. It is an extremely tall order. When I go back to the words of Jesus in Matthew 11, he wants to help us with that. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He said he wants to take our yoke upon him. We're to follow his example and to bear the burdens of others but he is there to help us with that. Turn with me to 1 John 5. Verses one through four. I just always find this so interesting is John here in his first epistle is telling them over and over to love one another. He says this in chapter five, beginning in verse one, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God And whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, and we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. I think I told this story a few weeks ago, but I'll tell it again. A couple years ago, I had an opportunity to preach on 1 John 4. And I related to all these stories in my Christian life of these people that I had been in church with. People who were uh, irritating. People who just knew how to agitate you. People that they were hard to be around. And I talked about how this isn't always easy, but this is what we are commanded to do. And then the, the lead pastor of that church got up the next week and talked about how it's not burdensome to love one another. I felt like this big. <laughs> what I didn't bring out is it it is hard because it's not within who we are to do this. But luckily, I don't have to rely on me to do this. I want to look at how tall this task is that I know that God has given me his spirit that will enable me to, that will provide those fruits of the spirit in my life if I walk in him. We can bear each other's burdens. We can pray for one another. We can counsel one another, restore one another, as he looked at in verse 1, by meeting the needs of others. Seek out needs. This kind of love has a responsibility within all parties of the church. For those seeking out needs, I thought this was interesting. I, uh, I haven't read this book in years. I have a book in my office that was my grandfather's. It's a book by Woody Hayes called You Win With People. And uh, in one of the chapters, he he talks all about his relationship with the student-athletes and the the relationship he encourages the coaches under him to have with the student-athletes. And he says in there, he says, in working with a student-athlete, we remind his coach that the coach must anticipate any problem this student may have. The coach cannot wait for the student to come to him, for very often the student who needs help is the last person to ask for it. This next part, this is just good advice. For us as believers with one another in life, It says, we remind coaches to avoid asking innocuous questions, such as, how's everything going? The automatic answer will be fine, coach, fine. On the other hand, if the coach will ask a more penetrating question, such as, when do you have your first midterm? or What's your toughest course? Or have you cut any classes this quarter? These are leading questions, which will help the coach to find out what helps are needed. He says, we could go into a broader sense, or we could go into more detail, but in a broader sense, there are two great suggestions, and they are simple. First, be available. Second, listen. If you want to fulfill this part of the law of Christ, that Christ commanded us to love one another, You need to be available, and you need to listen, and you need to seek out ways you can help your fellow believers. Whether that's the burden of sin or a burden of life. That's the way God has designed the church. The other side of that is that I said that all parties in the church are responsible for this, that being able to ask those questions, being able to answer them requires us to be open and vulnerable. And I've had a conversation with several people about this recently. How? So often people ask how you're doing and they don't actually wanna hear. (laughs) That when you tell them everything that's going on in your life, you get this look back like, (laughs) you were supposed to just say fine and we'd move on. There's a disingenuousness in the, the question, but so often when we do just say fine, we're being disingenuous in our answer. We're not willing to be open. This is the part of the sermon I was dreading. Um, and I added in this morning because I, I just I felt really convicted about it, that uh, that's so often. My answer, and it, it, I am typically a pretty happy-go-lucky guy. I don't let many things drag me down, but when they do, I often get drugged down hard. And so it's hard to be, when those things are on my mind, it's it hard to be open and vulnerable about those things. Well, this morning, a little before eight o'clock, I got a phone call. And uh, the person calling, asking me if I could do something. And when I picked up the phone, he said, oh, hi, Craig. How are, how are you doing? And I flippantly replied, oh, fine. Not long after that, Trevor got here, and he came in my office, and he knew what was going on. He said, how are, how are you doing, Craig? And I said, I'm fine. And a couple minutes later, I read through this section of my sermon about being open and vulnerable. As believers in looking to fulfill the law of Christ, we can't rob other people of the opportunity to take our burdens. That's important. It's our responsibility to bear one another's burdens. We also must be willing to share the load. Again, you come back to this whole idea of looking at the law of, look what I can do. And this is, a, it's a very American thing to not want to let anyone else in. To say, I did it. But that's not who we're called to be as believers. We as a church are in this together. And we honor Christ and his law when we bear one another's burdens and we're willing to share that load. I've been moving much slower through this than I wanted. I'll pick up the pace. Verses 3 and 4. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have a reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another. In the context, this high-minded person that thinks so much of himself is probably one that would not be willing to stoop down to take the burden of another believer. the remedy for this is to know who we are in Christ. Romans 12.3 Paul tells us there roughly that don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. And He concludes the verse with we've all been allotted an amount of grace from God. That's who you are. You are someone that Jesus Christ had to come to earth, live a perfect life, go to the cross and die for you because of your sin. And through faith in him, you are a new creature, but you are still saved by grace. You're not one of us can look around this church and say, well, at least I'm not him, at least I'm not her. we examine ourselves with who we are through God's eyes without Christ it puts us in our place and if that fails to work look at the works you do without him any kind of objective view of our own accomplishments should remind us right away that we have no ground to stand on and be prideful And in verse five, he he says, For each one is to bear his own load. It's interesting. He just told us to bear each other's burdens, and I've been telling you to seek out burdens of others and to share your own with people. But Paul here is saying that every Christian is responsible in some way to carry his own weight. We all have a load to bear. Again, we know that we have Jesus Christ from his own words and from what John told us in 1 John, that this is something that Christ is going to come alongside. Now, the burden in verse 2 was an excessive burden. Again, the Greek word there was for an extremely heavy load you were trying to carry. But Paul used a different Greek word here for for bearing your own load. It's um, the Greek word here is fortune. It was used of not someone, not a person carrying a heavy load, but it was used of a ship carrying cargo. It's something that's always fascinated me that going to a, a large port seeing those enormous ships and the amount of cargo they carry. But they were designed, and I think this is what I'm getting at, they were designed to do that. It's not like they they load it and they go, well, we can't do this. They were designed to carry that. And God has designed us to carry the load that he has given us in this sense. We're looking at the, the load that we have from him not this burdens of life, or burdens of temptation, those things that we're to help one another with. I've gone back there often, but in Ephesians 2, after talking about being saved by grace, not of works that we shouldn't boast in eight and nine, Paul continues in verse 10 and says that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them. And I think as Paul is using this idea of a burden of carrying this load, that's what we're looking at. That this is God's load that we are each to carry. But how much easier is it to carry that load? And I think one of the ways that when Jesus promised that he wanted to help make our load light to be yoked with him, is he created this church. His church, the universal church, our body of that church. And through giving each one of us his spirit, and by helping each other with those burdens of life, we're each able to carry our unload. The spirit within us enables us as well, but I, I truly believe that, that as you read through passages like Ephesians 4 and the importance of these relationships to our spiritual growth. That this is an important thing. We, this is each one's to bear his own load. I don't think we can do it without each other helping us with those other burdens. Jump to the the next section here, verses six through nine, we have a responsibility in how we treat our teachers. Verse six, the one who has taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. This is a, a specific example of burden sharing. I think this applies beyond just those who teach the scripture, but he's giving an example here. You look at the the context of who he's writing to in Galatia, they, under their Gentile system, they, they customarily paid services for, or paid fees for services that were rendered to them. Under Judaism, which the Judaizers may have been trying to tell them this is what they should do, Jews paid a temple tax. We went over that when Jesus pulled the coin out of the fish's mouth. And so by paying that temple tax, the teachers of the law were paid from that, as well as the temple upkeep. And so for these Gentiles who, this whole concept of voluntary giving out of love to someone who taught them the word of God, that would have been a new concept. And if they were being confused by these Judaizers who came from a completely different system, Paul was telling them here. The one who's taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. This is what you're to do. Those who learn from Bible teachers are to provide for the spiritual and physical needs of those teachers. I had a list of scriptures, but in Luke 10, Jesus told his disciples as they were going out into the world that the people should take care of their physical needs as they were giving this this awesome truth that he had for them. 1 Timothy 5, Paul tells Timothy that you shouldn't muzzle the ox when he's treading the grain. Just to take care of his physical needs. Now, you look through some other other places, like to the, in 1 Corinthians Paul Paul didn't accept gifts from them. He was supported by other churches while he was ministering to the church in Corinth. It's sort of like he had this He didn't regard that the teacher had to accept those gifts. It wasn't his duty to accept the gift, but it was the learner's duty to to offer it in love. Verses 7 through 9. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows of the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So if a person is selfishly withholding what they have, they're not going to see God multiplying that. You can't fool God. God is not mocked. It says that if you're sowing to your own flesh, if you're using, I'll be clear, I don't think this is just about physical needs. If you're using your gifts, talents, who you are, as well as your physical needs, for yourself, God is not gonna bless that in any way, shape, or form. It says that you'll reap corruption Some other translations, I believe the New King James says death. You will reap death. Then he says that the one who sows the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. He's not saying that if you sow to yourself, you will die. Paul often uses death In this, it's a spiritual defeat that he likens to death. It's this experience of sin that is so far from who we are called to be as believers. Neither is he saying that you can earn justification. He says, by sowing to the Spirit, you earn eternal life. He's not saying that you are earning salvation. There are several ways that eternal life is used in the New Testament. Most often it is used to speak to having life forever with God. But there are other ways that it is used in this context of the, the experience of that life. How rich that experience is. That, that idea in John 10, that Jesus said in John 10, 10b, that I came that they might have life and have it abundantly that it isn't just that you're gonna live forever, but that you're gonna live forever with this rich, full life because of your faithfulness now. Quickly read this quote and I'll move on. It says, it's extremely important to note that in every place where eternal life is presented as something which can be obtained by works, it is contextually always described as a future acquisition. Conversely, whenever eternal life is described as something in the present, it is obtained by faith alone. Let's quickly go back to that idea we brought up a couple times through here, that Paul was worried that that his teaching to them would have been in vain, that, that the reward he was going to receive from making disciples, which Christ had commanded him to do, would be lessened if they turned away to the Jewish law, and they never matured as believers because they were looking to themselves, not to who they were in Christ. And that's what what Paul, I think, is getting at here, is that 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 future reward that he's looking forward to, they need to be as well. And the experience of the eternal life that they already possess, but what would it be like? Our third, third group of people, quickly, in verse 10, is all people. Paul says, so then while we have the opportunity let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So Christians have this responsibility to do what is good to all people including the unsaved. I think this is so important. If we're going to be God's representatives on earth of who he is and what his love is like, then we need to live out his love. You know, Jesus said that the world would know us by our love in John 13, 35. And that is not, it's so sad, but it's, you ask a hundred people who don't believe, who aren't a part of the church, I doubt a single one of those hundred would describe love as their first thing they think of when they think of Christians. It's so important. This is who we are called to be. He's saying here we have we love all people. But just like if there's someone out there that, let's do an extreme example. I have a friend who's moving, and I could go help that friend, or if my wife was having a baby that day, I would choose to be with my family over helping a friend in that instance. So he's saying, our responsibility first is to each other as believers, but we do have a greater responsibility to the whole earth around us. Quickly as we conclude, I want to read this short article I saw recently. It says, what is an evangelical? Ask 100 different scholars and you'll get 100 different answers. It is a notoriously slippery, slippery term that makes the study of evangelicals difficult for religion researchers. While theologians may have one definition of evangelicalism, it is becoming increasingly clear that the millions of people who call themselves evangelical have their own definition of the term, and it's not entirely clear what they mean by it. One thing is increasingly, one thing it is increasingly does not mean is going to church. New research from pastor and Christian research Ryan Burge finds that the number of self-identified evangelicals who attend church regularly continues to drop, with 26.7% saying that they seldom or never go to church, and about 13.5% of self-identified evangelicals say they go to church yearly, bringing the number of evangelicals who go to church once a year or less to about 40%. About half the self-identified evangelicals attend weekly or more, with the other 10% saying they attend about once a month. This is pretty striking, but it's also a reminder of just how loose evangelicals are with what makes them an evangelical. One of the most common doctrinal definitions of evangelicalism is known as the Bebbington Quadrilateral, named for British historian David W. Bebbington. He said that the four markers of evangelicalism are biblicism, a high regard for the Bible, crucicentrism, a focus on Jesus' death on the cross, conversionism, a belief that everyone needs to be evangelized, and activism, prioritizing prioritizing expressing the good news of Jesus through social action. It's notable that the church attendance isn't really represented in the quadrilateral. That might be because evangelicals tend to focus more on the individual prioritizing the personal relationship with Jesus over any communal obligation. This may or may not have much to do with the overall decline of the church attendance among evangelicals, but it's notable. Friends, something has gone wrong. In my years at the funeral home, and I've met with all these families, and so often we would do funerals at churches or have a pastor come in. And I would often meet with these children of the parents who always went to church, and the children had left the church 30 years before. And so many of them had a story, but for so many others, it was just, there's nothing there for me. If they expressed faith, it's, it's my faith, I don't need church. If that's your thought of what the Christian life is, you're doing it wrong. It's not what Jesus told us the world would know us by. It's not the commandment he gave us. Again, that verse in chapter 5, 13 through 15, he says, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the church is supposed to be. And if it is, then there's something here for everyone. And if it is, there's something here that the unsaved will say, what's going on there? If it is, this will be the reflection of God's grace and his love that he wants it to be. It matters to God how you treat people. And he wants you to treat people like he treats you. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your spirit within us, the spirit that enables us to love one another, the spirit that enables us to experience a different kind of life, an abundant life, Lord, be with us as we go this week. Be with my family and the things we have going on. In Jesus' name we pray.